This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, a cash infusion for the Internal Revenue Service. Two former commissioners tell you how to get the biggest bang for 80 billion bucks. The Defense Department's budget battle begins. A former comptroller of the Pentagon reveals what it really means inside the building. And the number one story of the week, a cash windfall for government technology. An inside look at where the money should and shouldn't go. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. President Biden proposes $80 billion for the Internal Revenue Service. Five former IRS commissioners write in the Washington Post this week that money could help create a fairer tax system. Fred Goldberg is of Council for Tax at Skadden. He served as IRS commissioner under George H.W. Bush. Charles Rosati is senior advisor at the Carlyle Group. He served as IRS commissioner under Bill Clinton. They're both of, uh, they're two of the co-authors uh, of the op-ed about the IRS in the Post, along with Lawrence Gibbs, Margaret Richardson, and John Koskinen. Commissioners, welcome. Thanks very much for joining me. Uh, commissioner Rosati, I start with you. Where is the agency today staffing-wise in relation to historic levels, sir? Down, and no matter how you measure it, it's about 22,000 staff down uh, just in the last 10 years. And you can even go back to World War II. We have fewer, or they have fewer auditors uh, than they had uh, at any time since the, since the war. So it doesn't matter how you measure it. It's just way down. Commissioner Goldberg, you and your colleagues write in this piece, workforce attrition has been most pronounced among agents who examine complicated tax filings. What's the implication of that for the money that the IRS takes in and all of the, the budget implications across government because of that? Yes, sir. Uh, the, the, there are two implications. One is the direct implication of fewer audits, fewer adjustments that flow through those audits. The other is indirect as IRS audit rates decline, um, voluntary compliance declines. But I want to emphasize that the decline is not limited to that. Uh, it is also affecting service. Uh, there are points in time where less than seven, more than 70% of working men and women can get through to the IRS. This is not the IRS's fault. It is a terrific career workforce. On top of these two activities, the last 10 years have seen implementation of the Affordable Care Act. They've seen implementation of multiple congressional enactments to, to address the, the economic impact of COVID. And is any of this perfect? No, but the IRS is doing a terrific job under extraordinarily challenging circumstances. Commissioner Rosati, you and your colleagues write in this piece that the solution here is three things, information, resources, and technology. Um, you undertook a, a well-known effort to improve the way that people thought about the IRS when you were commissioner. Do you have a, a pet among one of those three choices that you think uh, would deliver big bang for the buck? Well, I do have a pet, but I will say the pet won't do it alone. Uh, I mean, the technology is really the thing that makes it possible to do what we think can be done today, both as Fred said on service, as well as on compliance. 
Um, because as you know, the whole world almost has been transformed by technology. And the IRS has also to some degree, I mean, you know, we now take it for granted that all the returns are filed electronically nearly. And that's what made it possible, for example, to send out these economic uh, stimulus payments rather quickly. But um, but there's so much more that can be done and needs to be done by the investment in technology to improve the compliance process. The IRS, for example, can't even use all the information it gets from uh, information returns. And, and there's some holes in those information returns. So, you you know, if you say, what's my pet? I think the technology is critical, but, you know, technology also doesn't work by itself. I mean, let's say you use technology to uh, identify a problem with a return. You have to have some employee there that's skilled on the other end of the line to be able to resolve the problem. So I, I can't say that you could just invest in technology and, uh, and nothing else. You really need a balanced program, an integrated program of all three of the things that we mentioned. Commissioner Goldberg, uh, you agree with that? All three of those things are important to drive this forward? Yes, absolutely. But, but Charles and I are quasi neighbors right now, and we have a different set of pets. Um, I agree with him that technology is absolutely the essential. Without the technology, it's never gonna work. But the other piece is the funding that you referenced. And it's not feast or famine. Tell the IRS to go out and hire a thousand folks this year and then not hire anybody. That's just a terrible way to run the system. Love your program because government does matter, but you can't make it work the way it's working these days when you have feast or famine. So the essential part of this proposal the administration is putting out is to also provide for mandatory 10-year funding. It's going to take the IRS that long to absorb it. It's not going to be a one day miracle makeover. So I th think that is essential, just like the technology is essential. Um, Commissioner Goldberg, the former acting commissioner, uh, Danny Werfel was on the program this week uh, talking about the $12 billion budget that the IRS has now. Um, if we take 80 billion, apply it over 10 years, um, that m makes the IRS budget 20 billion. At the end of the, the 10 year period, is the IRS still a $20 billion organization, or should it be a $20 billion organization to be fully functional the way that you and your colleagues envision it? Yes, sir. Commissioner Rosati? Well, I'll say this. It would still be smaller in proportion to uh, what it was, you know, even 30 years. I actually went back and looked for over 30 years, uh, you know, to see how it is. And it would, even after this increase, if you go 6% a year, which is what basically the administration proposed, even after that accumulating for 10 years, it would be smaller than it was, even though the number of returns is up 30% and business returns are up 80%. So proportionately, it would even be smaller. And and that's okay. It should be smaller because the technology can make the difference, but it can't be can't be down to what it is today. That's just not, not workable. Commissioner Rosati, Commissioner Goldberg, thanks very much for joining me today. I'm grateful for your time. Thanks for what you do. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You can find a link to their piece at govmatters.tv slash resources. Coming next, preparing for a budget battle at the Pentagon. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the authorization and appropriation roadmap for DOD. You're watching 7 News.
Welcome back. The chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, Senator Jack Reed, says his committee will push back the markup of the National Defense Authorization Act to July. That means a calendar year-end timeline for the NDAA is likely. The Appropriations Committees, though, are hearing from defense officials already. Dove Zakheim, senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, former Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller. Uh, Dove, welcome. It's great to see you. Long line of budget hearings this week. What do you make of the various questions and answers that went around Capitol Hill this week? Well, there seems to be a lot of frustration. They're, they're getting, the, the Congress that is, is not getting much in the way of answers. What they know is that the defense budget's gonna be about $715 billion, and they really don't know much more than that. Um, they're not getting any detail because no detail's been released. I think that's why Senator Reid, Chairman Reid, uh, has said he has to postpone um, any kind of markup. Uh, we heard earlier uh, this month that, or rather last month, that uh, Chairman Adam Reid had, Adam Smith, excuse me, had said uh, pretty much the same thing, that they needed to get all the detail by May 10th. Well, May 10th is right around the corner and there's no detail coming. And, and you could hear the frustration on the part of members who simply were not getting any detail. What is the impact of pushing the NDAA inside the building? What does that mean for the uh, practitioners inside the Pentagon, Dove? Well, uh, ultimately, if we're talking about uh, another continuing resolution, uh, what that means is no new starts, uh, plans to uh, increase the level of uh, production for particular programs uh, can't go ahead. Uh, Congress very often will give some exemptions uh, to uh, a con in a, a continuing resolution, but not too many. Uh, essentially, it totally messes up planning. It messes up the program, uh, the smoothness of a program. Uh, it, it just makes it awfully difficult. And this year is especially a problem because it's a new administration. The fiscal 22 budget is supposed to at least indicate the direction in which the administration wants to go in terms of what its defense program is going to look like. Uh, it'll be fully fleshed out in fiscal 23. But this is the year that it, it starts to indicate where it wants to go. Well, this just might not happen for quite some time. Does that matter? Does the delay matter potentially for some of the strategic documents that are supposed to guide where the Biden administration wants to go? A national defense strategy, a national security strategy, and so on. It could, um, because it all has to be coordinated. And uh, until they know, I think they know where they want to go. And uh, I'm pretty sure the documents will not be inconsistent with the program whenever it comes out. But of course, uh, just to give one concrete example, uh, the role of the army uh, in Asia is something that's being hotly debated right now. Uh, and uh, until they sort all that out, I don't see how a strategy document can really be very clear about that. You mentioned the controversy about the Army and its role in the Pacific and in Asia. Are, have you, when was the last time, I guess I should ask it that way, that you saw the kind of dialogue that is going on among the branches, not just in the context of the budget debate, but in the context of the broader strategic conversation? Well, it's been quite some time, quite frankly. I mean, you could go all the way back to the 80s where the Navy was uh, having a major debate with everybody else as to their role in terms of uh, how to deal with the Russians in Europe, uh, the Soviets, I should say. And uh, if you recall, or 
uh, may recall, uh, Secretary of the Navy John Lehman was pushing very, very hard for aircraft carriers going all the way up near the Soviet Union in order to play a major role in any kind of war. Um, but since then, uh, it, it hasn't been as obvious. A and this time around, um, the Army faces a choice, it looks like. It's actually some of its leaders have said so, between the possibility of having to cut back on forces or to cut back on modernization at the very same time that it has to modernize in a very different way because it does want to be part of whatever we might have to do in, in the Pacific and in Asia. And that strikes me, Dove, that that is the issue with the strategy documents is somebody's got to decide exactly what the roles are for all of these uh, these services and what exactly we expect them to accomplish in 2025 and in 2030 to now set them up for success to do that. Is that is that the real core issue at hand here? Well, I, I think the spending issue is very, very important. You know, traditionally, the services have basically split things up one third, one third, one third with a couple percentage points here or there. It looks like this time it's going to be different. And oh, by the way, we now have a Space Force as well, which is a player. And that's going to consume some resources that otherwise might have gone elsewhere. Uh, we are talking about a very different kind of warfare. Uh, and if you look out to the 30s, then you have to look at the kind of novel that Admiral Jim Stavridis just wrote about, where it could be a very different kind of war. So they're grappling with a lot of different issues all at the same time, at the very same time, by the way, where the administration itself has priorities that have nothing, seem to have very little, nothing is an overstatement, but seem to have very little to do with defense. Uh, the trillions of dollars that are going to, uh, uh, to fight the pandemic or for infrastructure or for many other things, uh, tend not to focus very heavily on the defense budget. All right, in the time that we have left of, what should I pay attention to? What should people who care about this process watch in the coming weeks and months? Well, the first thing is uh, what's being done with the Army. Where is the Army gonna come out? Uh, a second one to look at is the uh, Navy. You know, the Chief of Naval Operations is still talking about 355 ships. What happens with that and what kinds of ships? Uh, are they going to be partially manned or unmanned? How much money is going to be spent on those? Then you've got the question of the ground-based uh, strategic deterrent, the third leg of the triad. Is that going to be funded? There's a big debate about that. So there are some major muscle movements that are going to be debated over the next few months. Dove Zakheim, thanks very much as always. My pleasure. Thank you. Up next, the number one story of the week, new rules for the Technology Modernization Fund. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a cash explosion coming that agencies may never have to pay back. You're watching 7 News. Welcome back. Now the number one story of the week. Agencies now have new rules for paying back loans from the Technology Modernization Fund. New guidance from the Office of Management and Budget gives agencies opportunities to pay back the loans over time, or in some cases, not at all. Renee Wins, former Chief Information Officer at NASA. Matt Cornelius is Executive Director of the Alliance for Digital Innovation. He's former Senior Advisor for Technology and Cybersecurity Policy to the Federal Chief Information Officer. Welcome both of you. Matt, I start with you. What are the rule changes? How will they work? Well, thanks, Francis. I appreciate you having me, and it's great to be on with Renee. Uh, the rule changes are are simple and yet sophisticated at the same time, and, and I really applaud OMB and GSA for moving in this direction. So uh, they are giving agencies tremendous flexibility in how they want to present projects 
to the TMF board. So agencies can come with proposals that might repay uh, in full for the amount of money that they request. Uh, they also could come with partial repayment. So that could be anywhere from 75% all the way down to 25%, according to the guidance. Uh, or there could be just incredibly important, timely projects that may not have cost savings associated with them. Think cybersecurity improvements um, or, or infrastructure, shared services kind of issues that may not be able to repay at all. So uh, I think OMB and GSA are trying their best within the rules and the letter of the MGT Act to incentivize agencies to bring more projects to the board and hopefully higher quality projects to the board. Renee, I pick out the word incentivize from Matt's answer. From your CIO perspective, do these changes incentivize CIOs to get on board to try to push more projects through the TMF and change the nature of government IT? Good morning and thank you for inviting me. It's great to be with both of you, Matthew and Francis. And so the answer is yes. There is definitely with this repayment flexibility an incentive to pursue the funds from the TMF a little bit more aggressively. The CIOs within the agencies will still need the heads of their departments, their CFOs and others to be on board for pursuing this. So it's not just a CIO decision, but the CIO, it should be a lot easier for the CIO to make headway and get the support inside an agency in order to pursue modernization. And I would just add that this modernization is very important for continuous improvement in the federal government to deliver the services to the public. And so the TMF gives the agency that flex with the access to this funding, which is really what all of this is about. Renee, does this make it more appealing for an organization to try a larger project? I looked down the list of the projects TMF's already funded, and they're anywhere from five to, I think 25 million was the, the biggest one. Now there's gonna be a billion dollars there. What does it take to get an agency to think Maybe we should run something through here or, or, or we should apply for something that's 50, 100 million dollars that's really going to move the needle. I'm not implying the projects that are in there now don't, but uh, some of these big bang projects have been sitting around in the agencies for a long time. That was the intent with changing the repayment rules and other items that were re issued this week going forward. And I think it could do that. I think the hard issues you still have is the projects got to be run well and there needs to be a business case associated with making those changes. This uh, influx of funds also makes opens up the opportunity to do some more cross agency efforts so that say OPM with their retirement system well having recently retired myself that touches every single agency so while the larger amount of funds available does give greater flexibility and more projects and opportunity be pursued. You still have to plan to run this project well. There still will be accountability. There's still gonna be you know, a lot of other opportunities that you have to manage. So the answer is yes, but it didn't relieve the United States government employees from being accountable to delivering the services with the uh, with the IT. Matthew, you mentioned the MGT Act. One of the compromises that got the MGT Act through was the inclusion of both the TMF and working capital funds inside the agencies. The working capital funds have kind of disappeared off the radar screen over the last several years. Is, does that matter or does the huge cash infusion that the TMF is about to get really negate the need or, or the impact of a working capital fund inside an agency? 
No, I think I think both are important. And you've heard, you know, Renee actually testified last week in front of the, Simla, the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee uh, to talk about sort of legacy IT issues. And one of the things that Senator Hassan um, has has clued in on and has understood is that the way the MGT Act was drafted, while it in effect created working capital funds, it did not allow agencies to actually transfer any money into or out of them. So it, it essentially created dead funds that agencies cannot use. And so Senator Hassan actually wants to go back and tweak the act, make some make some reforms to the actual underlying statute to actually give agencies that transfer authority so they can use the working capital funds. Now, the flip side of that is um, there was tremendous flexibility in the MGT Act to deal with the repayment issue around the TMF. And so I'm glad that the board is moving there. But it, repayment is not the only issue. And, and the guidance, I think, falls short in some cases because they're still relying on individual agencies to come to the board with agency-specific projects. And OMB and GSA really need to uh, plus up the, the program management office at GSA, bring in some folks from the U.S. Digital Service who also got money in the American Rescue Plan, bring in folks from CISA who also got money from the American Rescue Plan, um, and get those folks on the ground going to agencies, working proactively with them to source the best projects that the board wants to invest in and not just any project that might make its way up to an agency. So I really think there has to be a better symbiotic relationship here because at the end of the day, you don't want to spend the board's time looking at just large quantities of projects. You want them to look at high quality projects that have buy-in up and down an agency, a high likelihood of execution, and maybe think a unique and different uh, way about how they go about executing and modernizing effectively. So that's what we're hoping to see. And then if the legislative path, Senator Hassan and her colleagues uh, find a solution for the individual working capital funds, I just think that we'll continue to expand and accelerate modernization going forward. Matthew Cornelius, Renee Wynn, a great conversation. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, Frank. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity 
to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.